everyone. Welcome to our first episode ever of Curing the World. In this episode, Yiqin and I will continue our discussion of crossing the chasm in healthcare. Yeah, going back to my previous life of working supply chain within inventory management, what you always want to make sure is when there's you have to forecast your demand, and then you have to be able to have enough、um, inventory in stock when people all of a sudden rush to you so that you have it. So there's this kind of very、uh, interesting decision making. Let's say that、uh, merchandisers will have to have is you know how much do I buy and when do I buy it. Um, you know, I think in the old world there has been a lot of you know personal judgment. Are you know just I I think you know during Christmas time or you know a couple months before Christmas time,、uh, typically you know this this particular item performed well last year, so I'm gonna buy extra. You know maybe there is some I assume a two percent three percent improvement on it. You know that those are the kind of things that's、uh, in the old world how that can be managed. Um, however, you know, if you, if you think about in the in a digital world, or you know, I say a digital, it, it was digital back then too. In the new world,、uh, where you can be, you have the luxury of having more data and having more kind of data science to help you、uh, make decisions. You can imagine all the different factors that we can capture to make demand forecasting a lot more accurate, including, let's say. Uh, you know,、uh, social media feeds. How much people mention you on Twitter? You know, whether、um, you know all the other factors that、uh, you can incorporate into your model, and that essentially can kind of tell you, you know, dear merchandiser, you know, reminder that、uh, you should、uh, buy extra、uh, toilet paper, or you know, buy extra. You know, I'm thinking COVID. So, or you know, hand sanitizer, right? All, all those things, or you know, let's say.、Uh, Candy for Halloween, right? And then you just the brand Gosh, you should I buy. I don't think I want people to tell me you need to do a cancer test. <laughs> that, that would be quite depressing, you know. Like,、uh, um, I don't know. Like, I don't know how I feel. Like, I get that. Well, but this but... is what people do now, right?、Uh, there's a government or there's a guidelines that so I think if if you're above thirty five or forty, you should start doing regular mammograms, right? That is something that is being has been codified, and we kind、yeah. of accept it. But、uh, you know, in in this interesting case, right?、Uh, the the general guideline is, let's say, a woman should get mammogram once a year at certain age or whatever. Is that true, though? Right? You know, it's it it is that really a it, it's a it's a policy or it's a guideline that's applied to the general population. But we both know that、uh, there are、uh, other factors that can impact that. You know, maybe for let's say Asian women who are less likely to have、um, breast cancer, maybe our frequency should be lower. You know, maybe for a certain population, the frequency should be higher. S- and you know, so those are the kind of things that I think with data we can make better recommendation on. Yeah, I just got like、uh, the, the cervical <laughs> screening <laughs> reminder、yes. from NHS, <laughs> and of course, you know that that's that's a bit sad. I think that says something about my age, of course. And yeah, <laughs>、um, but <laughs> at the same time, I, mean, I appreciate that. You know, for this type of stuff, it gets incredibly personal, right? And like, to what extent would people be comfortable? You know, it is has obviously has to do with something, you know, your personal information. A case, you know, about the target、yeah. pregnancy test, right? That girl. Uh, getting you know <laughs> recommended for a pregnancy test in the in the U S and without even you know she didn't even know it but somehow、mm. the the system know it and, <laughs> and most recently you know my Instagram keep popping up these、uh, I don't know if it is for you or it's just just for me、uh, you know for everybody、um, I've been getting these machines、uh, you know 
quote unquote, it's like, how can you be sitting around and will still lose weight? And I'm like, how do you know I'm sitting around all day <laughs> and I'm not working out? Like that's、uh, maybe that's that's a good guess,、uh, good、yeah. one because I am. So <laughs> well, maybe they're not, that way. Maybe they're not targeted. They're just sending it to everyone, and、uh, the ones that are sitting around and doing nothing are the ones that quit. Yeah, gosh, yeah, that's incredibly sadly true. So、uh, I don't know if you think about when it gets into more. Uh, heavy topics, right? Like, oh、mm-hmm. yeah, like there's a eighty percent chance you could be getting this cancer, or、yep. or, or, mm-hmm. or you know,、uh, you you might be in touch with you know from from tracking of AIDS or whatever rather than COVID, you could have、mm-hmm. a chance of getting it because、mm-hmm. you know you get close to this or you know you had some personal interaction with or、mm-hmm. some communicable disease. It, it just becomes a bit.、Uh, I don't know. I think it will take me a, a long time to accept that it's going to be that into my face, right? Because <laughs>、mm. yeah, that's actually a question to you, right? Because we both self-claim that、uh, we like to see more innovation in healthcare, but、yeah. at the same time, now we're saying that oh, you know, actually, if it's something that is really, really personalized to me, it might get creepy, and I may not want it.、Um, what you know, so. As a patient, right, or as a potential patient, what do you think about how they can kind of impact that? You know, what what do you think about you know how will the service be personalized but not creepy to you? I feel you know I just can't think of the way healthcare reminder information being delivered. Is going to be the same of consumer economics. I, I just can't、mm-hmm. think. I think it has to be more thoughtful, right?、Mm-hmm. It has to deal with something in a more,、um, I would say, not so lighthearted. Not not when I open my YouTube, I'm gonna see this,、mm-hmm. right? No,、mm-hmm. like you know, social. You you have to fit in the context, right? When people are actively, and perhaps you need a community of health community because when when I open my Instagram, I'm I'm trying. My incentive of opening Instagram is not to look for my health information.、Mm-hmm. I'm trying to, you know, maybe look up what my my friends are doing. Like, you know, how how is how how hard? You know, not to say I'm I'm doing this, but like,、uh, <laughs> but but it's like, you know, my point is that you know when you open up certain app, you're pre- preparing yourself differently, right? You're、mm-hmm. trying to expect different things. You should not be surprised like that when you're looking for entertainment and all you get is a. Is a bomb of like you could be getting cancer, right? That's obviously、mm-hmm. not appropriate.、Mm-hmm. So you need、uh, in that in that way, like perhaps you know a, a lot of digital health platform like Babylon or or、um, you know Libby or in the U.S. You know, I I think there there are a few platforms like that as well. Maybe that that is something we need to have for you know patients to or even regular people to access their health information、uh, in a you know. In a certain platform, that's not linked to you know <laughs> where、mm-hmm. uh, they were you know having other type of、um, you know life. So it's just you know it would be more appropriate.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I really like your points about、uh, you know it's it's giving people when. When people interact with certain things, they they going with an expectation. So you know that's why a healthcare app should not be, or a healthcare digital tool should not be like Instagram, <laughs> right? The the level of the engagement method needs to be completely different because that's how people like to engage with. Yeah.、Um, 
Yeah, I think about, you know, like something like, you know, a, a companion, like we, we call it a companion app, you know, a your health, your health uh, Personal buddy. Assistant. <laughs> yeah, your, your buddy that helps Eating. you, you know, get better. <laughs> yeah, you're, I, you know, I'm here to help. You know, I think some people might do, uh, might, might, might like that, you know, especially I think prior to us started recording, we started talking about, we were talking about your one friend who's extremely disciplined and uh, you know tracks the number of miles <laughs> that he runs, he bikes. You we, know, we should all the invite him to our to our podcast, by the way. Share yeah, his yeah. Personal health. Yeah. Yeah, he because he's definitely on the on the pioneer side of it, you know. So I think for there are like this uh, this group camp of patients out there, or let's call them people. There are this camp of people out there who would want you know a uh a healthcare assistant buddy thing uh however at the same time i'm all i'm actually also curious because i feel like a lot of times you know when people are interacting with you know something that would make them healthier it's also a self-negating experience because you're essentially saying that i'm not healthy enough right that's why you see i think that's a dilemma that hmm. uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people run into is you know let's say you do a weight loss program what you will notice is that people who do really well doing a weight loss program are the ones that are like not that fat, <laughs> right? Because they're already like determined they want to do it versus if you see a lot of people, you know, why weight loss programs fail, you know, at the end of the day, when you, when you want to lose weight, you want to ex- uh, work out more and eat less. That's the two things. But people oh. try not to do it because they don't want to self-negate themselves. They don't want to face I, the reality, even if they know it's yeah. true, right? So I'm not I think sure. that, I, I, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with that, actually, Ching. Like, mm-hmm. it's like the, the whole point about self-negating. Um, I don't know. I was just thinking personally, like, I recently got my Fitbit. I got my parents' mm-hmm. Fitbit because uh, I did the research about this whole, like, sleep tracking, right? I felt like, you mm-hmm. know, I'm not yep. exercising enough. My sleep is not getting, you know, the, the whole behavioral health thing, right? And uh, prior, I was kind of in the in the mindset where you described, okay, yeah, like, I just have to be more aware, and I can do it by myself, I don't need a machine to help me, <laughs> but, um, but, but like, like you said, right, earlier, you, you need to have, you need, you need to track your success as well, I think, you know, depending on your personality, of course, I know, mm-hmm. like, it's not for everybody, but I feel, you know, um, tracking my sleep quality in a more, analytical way mm-hmm. it has been helping me you know being a competitive person even for mm-hmm. myself <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I, I think it does help me to to gain more healthy habits mm-hmm. uh, and yeah I don't know about you know having been on all those weight loss uh, type of but it's keep <laughs> popping up in my, yeah. in my YouTube by the way it's like, <laughs> I think this Noom uh, is that called Noom uh, Oh yes, been, yes. Yeah, it's been it big. Um, I I was watching the presidential debate, and they even had ads during Chris, uh before presidential debates. I was pretty impressed, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I, I don't know how much they're spending on marketing, but but yeah, like a they're lot. definitely yeah hitting a lot of people. Like you know, maybe on that side, I, I'm like, how do you know I'm fat? I'm not fat. Like don't <laughs> don't recommend that to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, I don't know. I think it obviously it can be good and bad. For me, I've been having good experiences uh, mm-hmm. for now. For now, mm-hmm. right? I might hate it someday when I have very bad sleep and get me more depressed and you know what I need to be. But uh, so far, so good. I think it's kind of you have to keep the right you know mentality to the mm-hmm. data that you collect for yourself. Yeah, yeah. I I speak of that uh, in the in the case I've seen um, patients. 
or uh, cases where patients don't want to be involved, uh, let's say cancer patients, they don't want to be involved with things that uh, support their care or help help their care sometimes because they feel like um, they, they want to live like a normal person. And mm -hmm. every time when they engage with this, you know, health cancer tool thing, it's a another reminder to them that, oh, actually, I'm not normal. And actually, you know, I have this condition that other people don't have. So, you know, if I were a cancer patient, especially if I were a, uh, you know, fairly long term cancer patient, um, and I'm normally living a normal life, I'm going to work just normally, but then depending the way depending on the way that the service is being you know provided to me and how i engage with it if this you know particular service is designed in a way that every time i engage with it it makes me feel like a patient then i wouldn't actually want to use it unless i'm really sick yeah. <laughs> right so that's why i think from a design perspective you know do we let's say we you know we're designing for cancer patients or you know diabetes patients or you know people with chronic uh, conditions you almost don't want to say that, you know, dear ex patient, you just be like, dear, you know, itching, like viewing you as a normal person. I'm here to help you be healthier. I'm here to support you. I'm not here to remind you that you have a disease. I'm here to help you that you can live a normal life, even with the condition that you have. Mm. Yeah, I get, I get your point. I feel, um, I mean, the patient experience, I, I, I'm always hesitant to speak on behalf of the patients, right? Because, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, I, I'm not a dialysis patient, I'm not a cancer patient, so um, I cannot, you know, imagine what, what they're going through in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, mentally and uh, trying to cope with a, um, you know, a, a normal life, quote-unquote, and um, so, 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 yeah, I think it's absolutely difficult, right? And if you think about the traditional and we'll be thinking about you know changing the traditional way of care mm -hmm. but you know we have to be cognizant of what we're taking away from patients right especially these chronically ill patients and you know high high risk factor patients and um you know i i couldn't forget that one moment when you know i was visiting clinics right every time i go to a clinic that energizes me for sure to see mm -hmm. Um, what is the patient, you know, nursing, patient, doctor interaction. And I feel, you know, although we think it's slow, but slow in this circumstances, it's almost good because you're, mm -hmm. you know, you're for, for a lot of these patients, they feel very lonely, right? And mm -hmm. you need to be, you need to be very dependent. And, oh gosh, I cannot imagine. I think one well, of my biggest fear is to be old and dependent and, I think, you know, that, that, that just hits me and I, I feel I, I really empathize with type of that type of feeling, even though I'm not, you know, a patient myself. Mm -hmm. um, and then being treated with patience and, and respect as such a tough thing. And can we guarantee that when we involve technology, uh, the patients, you know, when we talk about efficiency, we're not sacrificing the quality of life of patients, mm -hmm. right? And um, we have to make sure we're being yeah, just thoughtful about the patient experience itself and what, what our patient need is. And I, I think, again, uh, we, we still haven't got that cleared out, right? What's our, what, what is the goal? What was, uh, you know, what defines success? Does it mean that, um, you know, we were spending less time on patient care or we are, we're, you know, which could be counterproductive uh, and uh, does it mean we're figuring out treatment more efficiently 
Um, so, so I think, yeah, all of those gets very, of course, very complicated. Um, but I agree with you, right? Like the, um, the, I think the level of innovation and um, we have to take, take the patient side into consideration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I thought of the perfect example that this had gone wrong. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think it was, uh, I'm, I'm just pulling this up. Um, it happened last year in March where um, I think it was uh, at Kaiser, um, a, a patient was told that he was going to die uh, by a doctor on a video link robot. <laughs> so oh I, I, I'll show you the link. It's, it's, if you look at the link, it's actually crazy because it's, um, you know, obviously they want to do telehealth and stuff. I understand the intent. And then the way that the robot is designed is almost worse than a scream because the robot doesn't look like a person. And they just have this like random, you know, mm. uh, you have this picture of a doctor like at the top. So it makes you, it makes it look like a person, but it doesn't look like a person mm. at all. And then, you know, unfortunately the doctor had to deliver the news to the patient through a video robot. And that was just a, uh, Th that was just extremely unfortunate and it's a horrible patient experience, you know, so there are things in that that's going back to your uh, previous uh, point. When we design for things like this, there are things that we have to be extremely cautious of. Otherwise, yeah. it will go really, really bad. Yeah. And I feel like for these type of I mean, I, I don't know what exactly is the algorithm, right? But I can imagine a, a simple improvement would be like when you come to decision or like, you know, um, medical judgment like that mm -hmm. it has to be obviously there is a se severity level right you have to triage it differently yes and to mm -hmm. what extent maybe you need to you know a second opinion from a real mm -hmm. person <laughs> um you know a, a medical doctor rather than just a robot doing that and uh, and and in, in terms of the delivery right the message delivery itself it has to be with compassion and you know we have to take into factor of what patients may go through when they mm -hmm. receive message like that right so um so yeah yeah absolutely uh i feel like we've job. been quite pessimistic <laughs> yeah um, what, what are the positive side right I'm, I'm curious like you know of course like healthcare has been improving right and the uh our mortality or you know life expectancy has been improving globally and um yeah, and I think if we think about vaccine and, you know, rare disease treatment, we've all been making a lot of progress. So maybe Ching, you know, at the, the more innovative side of healthcare, what do you see as, you know, something that make you feel more positive? Yeah, one thing that uh, I've that has made me quite excited about innovation in healthcare is actually, um, so my husband is a type one diabetic. Um, so mm -hmm. I've been kind of following along his journey of managing his chronic disease um, condition. And uh, I remember, uh, you know, when he was first diagnosed, he was very much reliant on the, uh, the traditional finger prick, uh, pricking. So Sorry to pause you, but I really have to say, so you are the personal assistant to I Ching <laughs> to support you. <laughs> yeah. That's very Thank sweet. you. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. So I've been kind of a accompanying him and uh, uh, you know 
observing his care journey um and obviously you know me being the having my business hat on i get very excited when when i see oh you know i ask him a lot of questions oh what do you do this what does your doctor how's your interaction with your doctor um but anyways yeah when he first got diagnosed at the uh, maybe six or seven years ago um he was very much reliant on a uh, finger prick a finger pricking method of uh measuring your glucose level so you know and then what that means is that he has to uh, um, stab him like five times a day and the mm -hmm. ergo what he will get out is five concrete data points of his glucose level uh, throughout the day um, however I want to say it's about four or five years ago he uh, his his doctor recommended him a new kind of medical device it's a it's something that you just kind of uh, it's like a button looking thing that you just put onto your arm and and they, it can continuously track your glucose level throughout the day and then you don't need to prick your fingers anymore all you have to do is uh, I think it used to be every 10 days now it's every 14 days you just take the uh, swap in and out of the button thing uh, it's called a freestyle library I want to say that has been a complete game changer for him in terms of managing his um, uh, diabetes condition because, you know, for one, he doesn't have to prick his fingers five times a day in itself. It's a huge win. Um, and the two, you know, it's really the amount of data that he's being able to get continuously um, because, you know, like glucose level is very, uh, very volatile and uh, it can easily change with the, what you eat for lunch, what you eat for dinner. Um, and it's really with the prior method, it's been very difficult to kind of really understand the causality. You know, it's very difficult to say, you know, I eat pizza and then after X, let's say 20 minutes, my glucose level typically goes up to whatever. In the, with the prior method of five finger pricks every day, it's really, really difficult to understand. But now with this new kind of continuous um, monitoring system, you can easily understand a pizza, let's say a beer, you know, uh, a whatever, a, a, a peach, right? You know exactly how it's gonna impact your body. And then with that, you get to recognize a lot more patterns. And next time when you eat a pizza, you know exactly how your body is expected to behave um, mm -hmm. so that's one that's one uh, innovation in itself that I've personally seen that has been extremely helpful um, so you know not only he's using that even with the older population his uh, his grandmother is also um, a type 1 diabetic too and at the age of you know in her 80s she's being able to adopt this new technology and be able to kind of uh, really um, transform the way that she manages her uh, her condition so that's something that I makes me feel really really hopeful uh, that innovation can happen happen in healthcare and then when it's done the right way it can really help patients quite a bit yeah i think that's a great example right if we think about um well, from from a from a system cost point of view right chronic disease is a huge chunk mm -hmm. of our uh, medical spending and uh, managing those or delaying uh, the stages itself not only help the patients but also you know help the system itself so uh, that's that's a great that's great to hear that your husband is uh, is is improving the way that uh, the technology is able to help him improve the way to manage you know chronic disease yeah what about you Nancy what are some success stories that you've seen that makes you feel still excited and hopeful yeah, I think I'm still in that pessimistic <laughs> uh, mode. Uh, let me think. I mean, obviously, for me personally, as I mentioned, behavioral health and 
you know, remote monitoring devices and being able to, you know, manage my own health rather than going to do a lot of testings. Of course, this cannot replace the testing when things get more serious, but um, I do feel, you know, all the, the digital health uh, and you know, uh, general uh, education on these uh, medical information has been hugely helping me. Um, you know, luckily, I, I don't currently have any, knock on woods, I don't currently have any chronic yeah. disease. And um, I think it's just a matter of managing a healthy behavior. And, it, you know, the, these devices definitely help me to be more aware and uh, track my progress. And um, I think from... Um, you know, healthcare delivery side, you know, putting my business hat on, um, you know, what we mentioned about the EMR, right? And um, I worked on a, a project of pharmacoeconomics, um, you know, helping patients for uh, medication management and also uh, trying to um, exactly how moving towards that population health and how do we connect the... Um, the dots between the medical outcomes to, you know, uh, patients' medication behaviors uh, to, to see, okay, are we able to improve quality of care for patients by implementing certain uh, programs, patient care programs? Uh, where do we need to put uh, disproportional efforts to help a certain, you know, segment the patients in a way that we can spend more, you know, in-person time with the patient's family and the patient themselves um so so that that definitely helps uh you know inform uh, some you know uh care delivery decisions to help us more to be more efficient uh and yeah i think and i think data is definitely helpful um on a lot of ways of course it's not perfect but having something to support is definitely an improvement itself. So that itself does, does make me feel helpful uh, because we've seen with this not so perfect data, we've already been improving um, you know, the care itself. So uh, if we were able to accelerate or um, make that data more robust and reliable, uh, that you know, I can only imagine it would be better. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think another thing that uh, um, I've seen that uh, has done really well is also the push for, yeah. Uh, I, well, I think people think about innovation and they almost equate it to digital tools or you know, some kind of mm. software, some kind of uh, other things. However, you know, innovation has, sometimes innovation doesn't require software at all. Um, sometimes innovation is truly, uh, let's say, a change in operation models. Um, one of the things that I've seen, at least in the cancer world, that has done uh, quite well is the um, operation model of involving multi-disciplinary uh, kind of practices coming together to make decisions. So, you know, traditionally um, within cancer, you have the medical oncologist, you have the radiation oncologist, and you have the surgical oncologist. And, you know, they all bring their different uh, expertise in terms of how they can treat cancer. Um, however, sometimes it becomes difficult is that, uh, you know, it's, uh, in order to make a decision on how to treat a patient, it really requires um, inputs from, you know, all those three, uh, uh, you know, uh, modalities that, uh, that are, you know, 
typically, you know, I think in, in real life, sometimes they're not talking to each other as much as um, they want to. So one thing that I've seen that has worked really, really well is this uh, idea of multidisciplinary care model, where, you know, I've seen it come out in the sense of a tumor board, which is essentially, you know, regularly host meetings across, uh, for uh, physicians to get together and talk about a patient's particular case, if that is a patient that they think would require this kind of multidisciplinary um, review. Um, I've even seen some other really, really good operation models. Let's say it's literally, you know, every single that walks into a door, uh, every single patient that walks into a door, they schedule you, you know, rotationally meeting with a radonc, a medonc, and a surgeon. And then, you know, they essentially, uh, three patients would rotate amongst three doctors. And in the fourth session, the three doctors will get together and then talk about the three patients' cases together. And that's kind of, you know, it makes, so, you know, you're thinking about, your patients essentially have to be at the volume of three in, <laughs> if you will. But, you know, that is systematically, you know, just by scheduling, systematically, it's introducing the multidisciplinary care model. And systematically, it's being, it, it's being able to pull in, um, you know, people and encourage the kind of collaborative decision making that is otherwise, you know, not there or difficult to facilitate. So, you know, it's... Um, uh, innovations in operational models, you know, for examples like these, that also make me feel hopeful that so there are things that we can actually do to really make care better. Yeah, I would echo that for sure. And that remind me of our, you know, one of the, the special programs that uh, we try to differentiate, right? In, in, in Germany, uh, for example, we have the, our CMO will be uh, having these regional roundtable discussions. Uh, it's, you know, uh, we take care of some of the end-stage renal disease patients and um, usually for these type of patients they have more than you know one comorbidities in general and mm -hmm. um, you know you, you might have the cardiovascular uh, mm -hmm. disease experts uh, plus you know sometimes even rheumatology and uh, and, and etc and besides the primary physician and nephrologist so I think those type of discussions definitely you know has been proven uh, to improve the patient experience and quality of care. Uh, but I guess, again, it's, it's the matter of, you know, resources and time, right? And, and how, how much of this can be replicated and how do we think about ways to uh, deliver this to more than the pilot uh, patients? Um, and how do we make it simple enough, right, to, mm -hmm. to do this? Um, so uh, that, that is the, the type of next stage uh, you know, challenge, uh, but definitely, I think the innovation of uh, the way we deliver care is there, and in being more, uh, like you said, multidisciplinary, comprehensive, and uh, you know the depth of it, we we kind of improve the breadth and the depth of uh, of care uh, for patients. Um, and I would say, you know, um, since you're talking about process innovation itself, um, I would say, you know, I have seen, you know. Oscar Health, for example, right? Mm -hmm. How do we have this um, kind of payer provider uh, integration in certain ways? And uh, especially in the US environment, I think that's, that's even more relevant. And, uh, you know, again, I think we can cover that in a separate episode with Kaiser as well to see, you know, assess some of the effectiveness and, uh, you know, the positive externalities being delivered and, um, and etc. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, so, you know, we, 
Nancy, we've talked a lot today, you know, why is healthcare slow? You know, what are some of the success stories out of the slowness? Um, what, you know, what do you think about if, if you were in a driving seat, um, what do you think about the best way to drive fast innovation in healthcare is? Yeah, again, I think that's a, probably a billion dollar question, right? <laughs> um, oh, easily. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, if I were to summarize, you know, some of the, um, the pain points that we, we've been talking about, um, you know, how they're across the whole uh, value chain of healthcare itself, right? Um, we talk about process innovation of uh, going more vertical, um, I think for me, and now we also talk about some of the, you know, healthcare delivery side, how do we make patients more informed and clinicians to be more informed. Uh, I think among all of them, what I feel most passionate about is the whole point of empowering clinicians, right? So I, I feel they are, you know, unless we figure out something more drastic up, upstream on the genome side, I still feel in the upcoming, you know, uh, you know, five to 10 years that the clinicians are still going to be the frontline uh, people to drive these changes. And how do we, you know, figure out ways to empower them either with devices or, you know, some, some type of, you know, um, decision supporting tool. I think that's still key of, uh, you know, driving and driving the multiplier effect in this field. Yeah, I I echo that. I agree with you. Um, I think there are many things that uh, we think will help uh, providers on the on their care delivery side, and that you know obviously in, engage in the rest of the health ecosystem as well. Um, I think one thing I would add to that is I am eager to uh, see kind of small pilot projects that uh, can be run with very small amount of resources and be very clear with what the expected outcome is and see if we actually get to deliver that. You know, I think a lot of times um, with, uh, you know, people who try to drive innovation in healthcare, um, you run into the conundrum of having to boil the ocean. <laughs> you run into the conundrum of, Yo, you know, if, well, if I talk to the doctor, but then I then I'll have to involve the admin side, but then that would then take me to the payer side, and then that would take me to the government side. Uh, and then by the way, there's, you know, this uh, patient, you know, privacy, data privacy that just sneaks up on me. So I think it's a, such a large uh, industry. And typically, you know, if you want to systematically change it, it you fall into the conundrum of trying to boil the ocean and then until you wear yourself out. So, you know, I think for me, I think there are many, many things that we think, you know, will be able to help. Um, but at the same time, you know, in the kind of implementation or execution piece, if we can, I almost want to, you know, carve out a small pot of resources and be able to run, you know, a ton of, you know, pilot small projects where it's very defined in scope, very small in scope, um, very clear in what the exact kind of outcome that you need to 
be measured for for the program to be successful and then run them actually kind of receive the learnings from it and then you know if it's successful then you can kind of work on taking it to the next bit and the next stage almost kind of similar to a pharma way of running trials right do the stage one two three four we can also do similar with you know running trying out different things because it's essentially what you're trying to do is you know test out an idea and see if it actually works and then you can kind of want to do it in a safe way which is a model that we can borrow from pharma companies to do that effectively yeah and i think probably in the end i will just kind of leave a challenging question uh, to us <laughs> so so you're almost indicating that we should be doing that in small steps right and kind of mm -hmm. learning to walk first and then run a bit before we fly Mm -hmm. uh, so just putting the question out there, is that something that's true, right? Like, you know, if, if we think about the whole, um, you know, looking back in history of significant changes in our, in our way of living, right? I mean, either it was about, uh, you know, as far as the electricity and, and now, you know, the cell phone, personalized computer, um, we were not given the choice or even like, you know, automobile, right? I, I couldn't forget that example I was uh, hearing. I forgot where, but, you know, during the old times, uh, when, when the automobile were first invented, they were not allowed. It's illegal to, mm -hmm. to drive <laughs> faster than a horse. So, um, so, so in a way that, you know, right now we, we you know, hear that it sounds very ridiculous, right? But uh, are we at the, time point that we are being ridiculous right now that we're stopping the horse we're stopping the car to the speed of the horse uh is that really right and um well it's hard to say right or wrong but um just challenging that assumption that before we fly we have to be able to run or walk mm -hmm. maybe you know it's, it's a different way it's not kind of you know linear itself it's uh um yeah it's a discrete yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it's a really good example, right? I think I think we can both of us can claim that we want to fly. Um that's where we ultimately want to get to. Um I think the phrase of um uh, walk, run and fly in itself is probably not a very good statement if you actually think about it because if you want to make sure you run uh, you walk fast, you buy shoes right you buy better <laughs> shoes you train your legs if you want to fly right. you start building small airplanes <laughs> exactly right so you know i think that the the older the, 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 the model of walk run and fly is wrong because if you keep on walking you will never fly what can what will actually make you fly is to build you know let's say it a, a, a teeny you know uh unmanned plane and then yeah. you put a man on it and then you make it you know last longer and then eventually you get a you know full-size commercial plane so yeah. i think for us you know if we want to if we want to drive towards the things that uh, you know we think should the healthcare industry in itself deserves we shouldn't figure out let's say you know take this analogy we shouldn't figure out let's say how to optimize uh, this, you know, one-on-one -on -one physician to provider um, interaction, right? Maybe in my book, that's maybe the equivalent to walking. 
you know, versus, you know, what we think about the future, the playing version, let's say, is precision health that is, you know, very democratically managed by, by physician or, you know, whoever with the assistance of, um, with the assistance of, uh, let's say, uh, AI or some other di digital tools, then that should be the, you know, we should start building towards that and we should start building those little unmanned planes that would eventually get us there. Yeah, I think that's a good comment there. And then let me just bring us back to the, you know, crossing the chasm. I think at the beginning of this podcast, I introduced that bell curve, right? Mm -hmm. And still we're talking about less than 15% of the people will be comfortable or are, you know, are the innovators. I think you and mm -hmm. me will probably both fall into that innovator and an early adopter side and, uh, versus, you know, many of realistically, if I put my business hat on, I'll probably land in the, the you know, if not late majority, um, the Lagarde side, right? The mainstream mm -hmm. market, right? Because mainstream market will need a, a built up, you know, well-built airplane that has demonstrated its value on flying mm -hmm. people safely and, you know, and, and endurantly, right? Like they, mm -hmm. they can fly for a long time and, and cost effectively as well. But how do we crossing the chasm between, you know, innovating that airplane and getting people safely and patients mm -hmm. safely, uh, you know, through the treatment uh, that that is the chasm that we're trying to cross right across all, um, you know, spectrum of, of the healthcare, you know, either delivery side or design side itself. So, so yeah, I think maybe we can close on that on that note and uh, continue our <laughs> exploration on how to feel that chasm absolutely all the rest of the episodes will be exactly talking about this question hey you thank you so much for our attention there if you have any thoughts opinions or feedback we would love it if you can join us on our slack channel in the description link